So, had a Sunday off, uh, unexpected, up in Seattle, and uh, Carlos uh, did a great teaching. And uh, the week before that was our first Sunday here, and we looked at the house of God, and, and we traced the Ark of the Covenant all the way through the Old Testament and on into the New Testament, and and in that looked at the presence of God being what that represented. I mean, Solomon had it right when he said, this temple is not going to contain you. You're infinite. And I'm paraphrasing, but that was essentially what he said as he dedicated the temple. And and yet he understood too, and, and we do well to understand that 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 was simply, uh, it was there. It wasn't because God needed it. It was because he knew that we needed a point of contact for him as he came and dwelt in that manner. And then we went on through into the New Testament, actually into the Gospel of John, where John, the the same one that we're reading here, it, it says at the beginning of this Gospel that we beheld him, uh, that Jesus took that God took on humanity and came and dwelt among men. He tabernacled among men. No no mistake with the wording there. He was relating directly to the fact that God had tabernacled with men through that ark and through that temple, and now no longer in a building, no longer in a box in a building in a yard, as we saw in the tabernacle, or in a box in a building on the Temple Mount, but now... Uh, worshiping him in spirit and in truth, as Jesus tells the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, that now God comes in the form of a man. That he actually takes on, he, he adds humanity. He doesn't get rid of his deity when he takes on humanity. He adds humanity to who he is in the person of Jesus. And as we're at this time of year, and we're considering now the incarnation, the time where God stepped out of eternity and into time to accomplish redemption for us. We're here in this narrative, this upper room discourse, these last five chapters, not the last ones in the gospel, but the last five chapters that we're looking at, we're in chapter 16 and 13 through 17 is this whole five hours before Jesus is arrested and goes through the the trials and all and ends up going to the cross. We're here looking at this. We've looked at it uh, in from chapter 13, where he modeled servant him, servanthood. And he didn't just model servanthood in general, but it was servanthood to him. You got to understand that our servanthood is, uh, we do well to understand that, uh, and I know that in me there's an aspect of wanting to be a man pleaser, but no, he doesn't want us to be man pleasers. You don't serve God by pleasing man. You please God by serving man. And that's a whole different approach. Our goal is to serve him with whatever we do, with whatever we do. And it doesn't matter if it's making coffee or if it's going on the mission field. It's for him. It's for his glory. And and we don't have the luxury of injecting ourselves into that because then we start drawing the attention off and the glory off of him. And so Jesus has been illustrating that. He illustrated that in chapter 13 beautifully when he washed his disciples' feet and said, Now, I've done this as an example. Now you go do the same thing. Serve me by serving others. Uh, and so, uh, two, another thing about these five chapters is they're marked by separation. Jesus is he's essentially saying, Look, I am separating off from you. There in chapter 13, he kind of dropped the bomb on the guys. And, and then he was telling them about, about loving me as the way I've loved you, or loving one another the way I've loved you, and, and all of that. Peter didn't even hear that after he said, I'm leaving. And, and then Peter comes back to it uh, and says, well, where are you going? And we looked at that in some detail then. I'm not going to cover it again, but it's important that we understand the context of these things. These guys showed up at the upper room that night to take Passover with Jesus, thinking he was going to set up his kingdom then. They had no point of reference, no clue that he would be dead the next day. And and, and the things that he's telling them have been radical. They have been in some ways kind of stumbling to them, not because he was intending to stumble them, but because they just didn't understand. We're going to see more of that this morning as we, Lord willing, finish up chapter 16. So uh, in chapter 14, we saw that uh, he talked about, in my father's house are many mansions, is how it's rendered in the King James, but that's really not a good translation. Dwelling places. And he's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
And also what he's doing with his men is he's preparing us for that place. That's part of why we go through the things that we go through, that he does this thing called sanctification in our lives that often involves hardship. It often involves trial. It often involves taking and grinding off those rough edges as he conforms us to the image of his son, as he is preparing us for heaven. And sometimes those facets don't polish off easily. I know in my life, and the Lord is constantly doing this work. He's letting these guys know it's not going to be easy, but it is going to be glorious. And so he tells these guys in chapter 14, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not just leaving it. That's what rabbis would do. As they sort of served out their apprenticeship under a rabbi and studied under a rabbi, they would get to a certain point, and the rabbi would just say, okay, you're on your own. And he's saying, no, I'm not like earthly rabbis here. I'm not leaving you on your own. I will come back. I will come back and receive you into myself. I will come back, and now, but in a different way. And he's trying to illustrate that. He's using, we'll see here this morning in the text that talks about Jesus says himself, he says, I'm using figurative language with you guys. Why? Because I'm trying to give you a way to grasp the, the eternal, the kingdom concepts. And in order to do that, he keeps laying out these earthly examples, and he does it some more. And yet it's because he loves them, and he loves us, and he wants us. To, again, this is not just for a group of men in the upper room in the first century. It's for us. Uh, this instruction is directly for us, especially the part that has to do with after the cross. Because guess what? We're still in the kingdom age. We're still or in, the, in the, the church age. We're still in the, the, the age of grace, the, the time where the church has been given the oracles of God, and we are the representation of Christ on this earth. And so these are things that are given for our instruction. In chapter 15, he speaks in three different themes. He, he talks about the secret of having a fruitful Christian life and ministry. He talks about, I'm the vine, you're the branches. My father is the vine dresser. And, and talks about that the only way that this works, the only way it will is if we are not disconnected from the vine, not disconnected from the source of nourishment and the source of power. We don't have that on our own. We don't have that in and of ourselves. We are utterly dependent upon Christ. We are utterly dependent upon the, the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he is weaving the ministry of the Holy Spirit all through these passages. Uh, finished up last time. We looked at uh, in chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 15, we spent uh, like two and a half weeks before I ever got to verse one. You remember in chapter 16, and it kind of became a joke. It's like, well, is he going to get to verse one today? And it's no. Uh, but we looked at the ministry of the Holy Spirit and, and the essential ministry of the Holy Spirit at that. It's not, this is not stuff that is an add-on. This isn't stuff that we just kind of get to, well, kind of work in for our Sunday experience. This is life. This is life. This is the only way that we can live life. It's through the agency, through the power, through the working of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely vital that we understand rightly the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That, that he says earlier in this chapter, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, that he says there's three things that the Holy Spirit will do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin, because, it, well, I'm not going to go, I'll reteach that again, but I, I want to cover some ground. So sin and righteousness and judgment, and then he says the second thing he'll do is he'll guide you into all truth. That if you have any understanding, any conceptual or actual understanding of what's being said here in the pages of Scripture, it's because the Holy Spirit is revealing it to you. And with that revelation comes responsibility. And with that responsibility comes accountability. These are serious issues because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. That we simply coming by faith and saying, Lord Jesus, I trust that you did that work for me. That you went to that cross for me personally. That now I know that through faith in the finished work of Christ, that now me being a cleansed vessel, being declared not just sinless, but being declared holy, clean, that now I can become the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. Because that's his design. That's his desire. And with that, 
that he can open my heart to receive the things of God personally. Fabulous. I mean, these are such powerful truths, guys. This is such essential information. And, and again, uh, and I'm not going to go and go on a big deal about all the false stuff out there, but there is so much false stuff out there. There is so much garbage out there that absolutely misrepresents our Lord and, and, and misrepresents the working of the cross and misrepresents the power that we have as believers. When Jesus is with these men, he's saying, look, this is life and death stuff. I don't see that with a lot of the charlatans that are out there. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's so sad. And I, I think, of, I look at our little church, we're a little church, we have a little power. But give me the church of Philadelphia any day, any day. He said, you have a little power and you've kept the word of my test. You have done what you're called to do. That's the course that we're going to stay on. There is no other real course to be on. And I don't care if we remain small. I'm not out to build a big church. I just want us to be faithful in what God's called us to individually and what he's called us to as a church. That's where it's at. So he talks in chapter 15. He says, here's the secret of a fruitful life in ministry as a Christian and how to be fruitful in his absence. He's, he's talking to these guys a lot more about what's going to happen when he's gone. He's let them know that, look, the, all of the pushing back from the religious leaders and from the world at large has come onto me. He was the one that they were always scorning. He was the one that they were always attacking. He was the one that they wanted him dead. And he's saying, I'm going to be going and because I'm going, because I'm leaving physically, that's going to come on to you. And the persecution will come on to you. And you need to be equipped for it. And he starts to equip these guys on how to properly interpret persecution. And even into chapter 16, he says, look, I'm telling you these things so that you will not be made to stumble when it comes about. I know and we don't have the kind of persecution here in the United States that so many nations have. We don't have the walk out of a building and somebody puts a bullet into you because you're a Christian. We don't experience that generally. I mean, it probably happens sometimes. But he's saying, look, these are serious issues. These are life and death issues. And you need to know how to interpret it when people, even if it's they just get mad at you or they get angry at you or they don't want to be your friend or they don't, you know, they don't welcome you to the family anymore or whatever it is. Because you stand up for Christ. you got to know that there's a cost and count the cost and go for it. And know that he is not just with you, that he is in it. And sometimes it looks dark and bleak and sometimes you feel like you're the only one, like Jeremiah, you know, I'm the only one left. And God said, no, you're not. <laughs> but that's God's will. That's his design for our lives. And, and it's not that it's always tough because he says, here, we'll look at it this morning again. It's his will to give us joy. In the middle of all this stuff that you can walk around with this silly smile on your face knowing it's all going to work out. Uh, I had a difficult week with my brother standing next to his bed while he is unconscious and on a, a, a ventilator and all that. But just leaning down, sometimes I'd kiss him on the forehead and sometimes I'd just whisper in his ear, Billy, you got to know that Jesus is here and that he loves you. And, and you need to lean into him, just trusting the Lord that, that that's going to get through somehow, some way. It'll get through to him. And, and trying to get emotional about it because it was an a interesting week. But, but those are the kind of things that we need to take to heart as we come and we sit on Sundays and listen to his word. As we sit before him and we study his word with whatever our habits are through the week, to know that there is an end to this. And that's that Christ would be glorified in our lives. That's it. That's, that's the goal. That's the purpose. And through him being glorified in our lives, that other people see, wow, he lives a little differently. Or she doesn't seem to be so rattled about this. And, and that as that is worked out in our lives in different situations in different ways, that we see that our goal, our greatest good, is to lift up the name of Jesus and to say, he's the one that I serve. He's the one with whom I have to do, and he's the one that I love, and he loves me. He loves you. It's all about his love. So uh, in chapter 16, he, he 
again, he, he starts going into this whole ministry of the Holy Spirit, it, again, convicting the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, that he will guide us into all truth. And he says, finally, he'll glorify me. And again, a pattern for us on all of those. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's it. I mean, I hear so much added stuff. No, that's it. Jesus, if, it, if there were more, he would have told them and us. But that is the ministry. That is what he does. And yes, he brings power into our lives. But that's the essence of the ministry of the Spirit in, in our lives. And so as we look at this, and as we go now into chapter 16, the last half, I'm going to pick it up with the last verse that we covered the last time around, which was, what, three weeks ago. And it's in verse 15. He says, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So in context, he's just wrapped up talking about this threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, all that the Father has are mine. And he's going to declare it to you. How is he going to do it? Through the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit speaking to us, through his word, sometimes speaking to us just by saying, Lord, just inform me, just bear witness to me. And, and we talked about that. Does God speak to people, to his people? Yes, he does. Yes, there is the logos. That's the written word. But there's also the rhema. That's the spoken word. He will never speak in contradiction to his written word. So that becomes kind of a litmus test. Is, is, that, is what I'm hearing, Lord, is that from you? And, and yeah, I mean, he's not going to tell me something that is in direct conflict with what is written here. Uh, so it, it's interesting because in, in verse 16, he begins to go into some wordplay here. And this is some really interesting wordplay. He says, in a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me because I go to the Father. He says a little while seven times. Well, it's not him, but him and the guys. This, this term, a little while is mentioned seven times in verses 16 to 19. Because these guys, it just sets the, turns them on their head. They Again, they're, they're left scratching and has trying to figure out what on earth is he talking about. And, and the word little here is micros in Greek. It's where we get the word micro. And it's a short while. It's where we get, like, uh, I worked as an automotive machinist as a kid. I used a micrometer. So, and it was to measure very, very, very short <laughs> measurements. And so he's saying, he's not talking about down the road. He says, in a little while. Now, there are some people that say, and, and I want to just cover this in case you've received teaching consistent with it. Some people say that when he's talking about in a little while, and then in a little while I'll be back, he's talking that they're talking about the second coming. And that could be, but I don't believe that the Greek here indicates that he's talking down the road. I believe what he's talking about in this, in a little while, you're not going to see me. I'm going to the cross in a very short time. And again, in a little while, you'll see me. I'm going to raise from the dead in a very short time. Uh, and then I'm going to ascend to the Father. So death, burial, resurrection, ascension, I believe, is what's being covered in this. And he says, uh, I'll read 16 again. A little while and you'll not see me. And again, in a little while, you'll see me because I go to the Father. Uh, and it's kind of a paradox because he's saying essentially because I go to the Father, because I'm going away, you're going to see me. And, and so these guys, it says in verse 17, that some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you'll not see me. And again, a little while you'll see me And because I go to the Father. So they have sort of an unholy huddle. The guys kind of pull off to themselves and uh, and they decide that they're going to have a confab. A confab is, a, is a, it's like a private meeting. Uh, it's, it's sort of an informal deal. So they get off to the side and they start this whole discussion. I think it's interesting. That, and it doesn't occur to anybody. Why don't you just ask him? It's the name of this study. I don't know if you saw the title slide. It's called Just Ask. Because, and how many times in my life will I get all worked up about something? And I'm just going to be transparent. It happens more than I'd love to admit, but I'm just going to be real, that I get all worked up about something, and, and I'm, my wife's smiling over here, uh, she knows, but the point is I get worked up about something, and it's like, oh, man, you know, what am I going to do, what am I going to do, what am I going to do, and, and we were talking about something yesterday, and I, I just said, hey, wait, just wait, i got to process this, she's already processed it, I'm a little slower, and so, yeah, it's like, and, and then it occurs to me, 
okay, John. And sometimes I'll kind of chide myself, okay, Pastor John, why don't you just pray? Just ask. And I know that at least some of you know what I'm talking about because in our natural self, in, in the natural, it's not we are not accustomed to seeking the Lord in every matter. And we have to stop sometimes. Sometimes we just forget. The Holy Spirit's ministry is true. Again, that's in context here. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, just stop. Ask. Lord, give me some illumination on this. Lord, give me peace in the middle of this because I don't understand. Lord, but it all starts with that, Lord, because he's either Lord and Savior or he's just Savior and I kind of want to work in Lord, or he is the Lord of my life, and he wants to direct the course of my life. It's not the big decisions that shape a life, folks. It's the little decisions that go on all through the day, every day, that add up to a life. And so for me, and this really spoke to me as I was preparing. It was like, I sense the Lord saying to me, just ask. It's not complicated. This is not highfalutin, deep theological secrets that we're going to reveal here. It's Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one with whom we have to do, the one that pours his love out, his grace out on our lives every single day. And he says, just ask me. So these guys are talking among themselves and saying, what does he say? It's a little while, you're not saying it. a little while, you'll see me. I'm going to follow. And, and, and it's, it's interesting because all they're saying is, we're just not tracking with what he's saying. In verse 18, they said, therefore, what is that he says a little while? And we don't know. We don't understand what's going on with all of this. And uh, so, I mean, the remedy seems obvious to us, but again, they're, they're kind of trying to get up to this. This has been a very difficult evening for this, these guys. I mean, Jesus has dropped one truth upon them after another. You ever been in a, at, like at a seminar or something where they cover so much in such a short amount of time, you're going, man, I am spinning. I, I got the first five minutes, and I'm still trying to figure that out, and all this stuff's going on. I'm going to have to get the tapes or the videos or whatever. because it, These guys didn't have that luxury, but they did have the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting to me is John writes this, and as he writes this, he's probably north of 90 years old. Most scholars agree that he was a really old guy. And, and as he writes this, it's as though he's sitting there. I mean, he writes this with such clarity and detail. But that's, again, that's the work of the Spirit of God within us. He brings to our remembrance the things that we need to know. These guys are saying, essentially, in verse 18, we don't understand. And, and, and Jesus, could you maybe just bring it down a few notches? Could you maybe just like rephrase that in a way that we can understand? What's this little while stuff? I don't get this little... And you're going to the... Okay, wait, 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 wait. You know, again, we know that the cross is looming. So does Jesus, but these guys don't. They're still trying to catch up from the earlier things in the evening, and he lays this other thing on them. And, and, and they're, these are the last... This is the last bit of a talk that Jesus has with these guys before he goes to the cross, these are parting instructions. He's letting these guys know things are going to shift. And that's what this passage is about. He's separating from them. He's going to the Father. He's letting them know, in a little while, I'm going to be gone, and you're going to be absolutely devastated. But in a little while, I'll be back. And, and we'll talk about the joy that comes with that. So he's so gracious. In the word play here, verse 19, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, but they wouldn't ask. Uh, and he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you'll not see me. And again, in a little while you'll see me. And the, here's the word play on that. Let me go back. He says, a little while and you'll see me. The word there means to physically see. It means to gaze upon, to observe. It is to see me with your eyes, that you'll see me. And again, in a little while, you'll see me. The second time he says, see me, it is not the same word. The, the, the first time is you'll gaze upon me, you'll see me physically. The second time is you will perceive me. 
or to have insight and to understand. Whole different word. And there's a word play in Greek that is, doesn't show up in the English. And I think it's a shame because it really brings clarity to the passage. All right. It's the difference between me saying, hey, Rick, you're back from Arizona. I see you and Letha sit there and I'm glad you're back. Yay. You know, like, or somebody tells me something. I go, hmm, I see. Oh, I see. That's the two different meanings of this one word. So what he's saying is you guys, you know, <laughs> I love you, and you're not quite, you know, you're kind of thick-headed, and I'm adding that myself. But they were, in that sense, they didn't have understanding. He's saying, you see me now, I'm going to go away, and when I come back, you're going to understand. You're going to have perception. You're going to have understanding. There's going to be depth and meaning to what I'm doing here. You don't get it now, but you will. That's what he's saying. Again, it's a shame that it gets lost in English because you can breeze right through this and look at it and take the same interpretation, but it's not. There's a very clear delineation there. Interesting, John, again, as an old man, when he wrote 1 John, he wrote this. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that that which we, in verse 3, that which we have seen. Yeah, I mean, this was not lost on this scene. John had, he was as clueless as the rest of the guys when Jesus spoke this. But here he is as an old man looking back, and as he writes this, He's writing with the understanding that Jesus talks about on the other side of the cross. Are you following me? And so as he writes this in 1 John, he's saying, I see this, I beheld it, I handled him. This is the truth. This is the way of salvation. This is what God has been doing all along. That we, which we have seen and we heard and we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father. And with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Jesus explains this stuff to them. He's not just doing it for clarity. There is a crisis right around the corner. A huge crisis. And these guys are going to be in it. And he knows. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me that Jesus knows these guys frame. Uh, going in. Going into the whole thing. He knows them. He knows that Peter is open mouth, then engage brain. He knows that about Peter, and he loves Peter. Peter's bold. I, I love Peter. I he just love that he's there. And he knows that these other guys, they all have their quirks. They all have their areas where they're failing. You know, Tom says, oh, show me that. You know, the whole deal. And I take such comfort from that because he knows me. He knows you. He knows my quirks. He knows yours. He knows what we go through. He knows the areas where we might have a disconnect and, and we really need to, to focus on. He understands that. That's why he, he, he perfectly tailors his will to our lives individually. And he's doing that with these guys. He knows that they're not going to get it. He's speaking this stuff in figurative language to help them to get it, but they really won't entirely understand until he's been to the cross and he comes back. And then they have perception. Then they're not just looking with their eyes. And that's the difference. That's the change that's coming about here because Jesus knows he's going to be gone physically. He will not be physically available to these guys ever again. He's got a few more minutes to talk to them, and then he's going to pray, and then they're going to arrest him. He's an hour or two away from the Romans showing up in the Garden of Gethsemane to cart him off. And this, these last instructions he's giving to them, he's saying, look, things are going to shift. I'm going to go away. You're not going to see me, physically see me anymore. But I will be back. And you will be able to perceive me. Again, in the context of this passage, through the agency of the Holy Spirit. This is going to change. I don't want you to think that when I am arrested and I'm killed, that that's the end of it. Because that would totally shipwreck their faith. They'd go home, they'd go back to the nets, and Christianity would never have a chance to get started. So he's speaking these things into them so that when it happens... When it happens, not if, but when it happens, that they'll be scratching their chins and going, 
Oh, no. You ever been in a place like that? You go through a trial and say, Lord, I have no concept what you're doing. I don't know how you can bring anything good out of this. This thing really hurts or this is really a challenge or, you know, whatever it is. And, and sometimes you go through those and we know that we won't have the answer to that thing in this life. It's not in the contract for him to tell us. He doesn't give us perfect understanding of all of the things we go through. But we do know that very often, I know in my life, I go through things and I'll get to the other side of that thing and I'll go, oh, that's what you were doing. Oh, wow. And I went kicking and screaming and you were doing this beautiful thing here. That's essentially what he's laying out for these guys. Uh, verse 20, uh, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and, you'll, and you will be sorrowful. So, Thinking about it again, from these guys' perspective, the cross would totally undo these guys. And Jesus knew it, as I mentioned. And so as he's talking now, he's looking at the cross. He's saying, look, you're gonna, you are going to be blown away. You are going to be heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken with what's coming. He's, again, he's preparing them for the crisis that's coming. He knows that these guys are going to be undone. And he wants to speak into them before it happens. And he says, the world will rejoice. They, think about it. The religious leaders, they didn't, all they had in their minds was to get that guy out of here. Get to, they, were, they would be rejoicing. They were finally done with this Jesus guy. All he did was come and rain on their parade. All he did was come and threaten their power base. And, and they had a weak power base because they were a captive nation under Rome anyway. And, and what Jesus did was he kept on undermining their gig with these things like truth when they were a bunch of crooks and charlatans. And, they, and, and he kept speaking truth, and, he, and it just set, their, set them on edge. They couldn't stand this guy. So he says, look, you're going to be heartbroken. The world's going to rejoice, but I've got a plan. I'm working this out as we go. The sorrow that they would feel would be real. They would be sorrowful at the loss of their relationship with him. They, I mean, think about it, folks. I don't know if you've ever seen someone that has physically died. In a short time, they would be looking upon, if they were there, unless they had scattered so far that they weren't present at the crucifixion, but they would be looking upon his lifeless body. And graphically, you know, perhaps his eyes would be open, his mouth hanging, whatever. I mean, a lifeless body, it's very clear when you're with a body that is lifeless. And he knows that that's coming just in a matter of hours. And he's preparing these guys. He's letting them know. It's sort of cryptic terms, but as it comes about, the lights are going to come on. The Spirit of God is faithful to illuminate their thinking, to bring them to a place of understanding, of perceiving, as he has mentioned here. So they'd be sorrowful at the humiliation of their master and Messiah. They'd be sorrowful at the seeming victory of his enemies. They knew who his enemies were, and it would look like they won, wouldn't it? It would totally look like they won. They finally got rid of the sky. They put Jesus on the cross. It's done. And they would have the temptation to pack their bags and go home. These guys are from the northern part of the nation, and they were down in the southern part because that's where Jesus was, and they followed him. And the great temptation, and, and actually they caved to that temptation later in this gospel. We'll cover it when, when Peter says those famous words, I'm going fishing. And that was a career choice. That wasn't recreation. And the other guys say, yeah, we'll go with you. We'll get into that when we get there. But these guys' emotional gears would be stripped. They, they would just be ground by that point. They'd be sorrowful because all they had hoped for was now gone. These guys had their eyes on the kingdom age then. It's absolutely, I mean, and they were arguing about it. who would be the greatest, who would have, you know, the office next to Jesus, who, who would have the power, who would have the authority. And, and, you know, when Jesus said, are you able to take the cup that I, I'm going to take? And they were even so ignorant to say, well, yeah, we will. And, and, you know, their mom is trying to get them, hustle them. Into, it was just a, it was kind of a circus with these guys. And I'm not trying to be demeaning to them. We would be acting the same way because we would lack the understanding of what was coming and the eternal significance of what that cross would do, what it would accomplish. 
and the significance of the resurrection now giving us the ability to come boldly to the presence of God personally. He says in verse 20 of the second half, he says, but, I love that word, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. You'll see me on that cross when my resurrection is coming. And again, very often in my life, in your life, we face things that are sorrowful. I had a sorrowful week with my brother not knowing if he was going to live or die, not knowing if he would be in heaven or not. And yet I know that in that day that Jesus says, I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. I know that he brings us to places where we have to surrender. Lord, it's not my will. My will is that he wake up and I can talk to him and be assured of his salvation and just go home and forget that this all happened, blah, blah, blah. No, it's not. Not, not where it's at. But my joy comes from knowing that God is in control, that he didn't get up this morning and forget my brother was sick. He didn't get up this morning and forget that you're going through this or you're going through that or your health is failing or you're having financial difficulty or whatever it is. He's in the business of turning sorrow to joy in a big way, in a major way with the cross and then the resurrection. But also in our lives, he still does the same thing. He allows these things to come into our lives, and sometimes we don't have understanding. We're just like these guys. And yet he allows them to accomplish his purposes in our lives. And as he does that, often he grants us the perception of saying, Lord, I don't see the end of this as being good, but I know you are. And I'm going to rest in that. I came to that place many times this last week there in, in the ICU with my brother, just sitting there alone with him for hours every day. And it's like, Lord, I know that you're good. And I would get up and just whisper in his ear and all that, like I mentioned. You know, it's just a, a sweet time with the Lord. People in my family that don't know the Lord being bewildered and, and very reactive and all of that. And I understand that. And yet I know that this whole thing is in his hands. I know that my life is in his hands. I know that your life, the things you're going through, he is totally aware of. And that he's in the business of bringing sorrow or bringing joy from sorrow. He will do it. If not on in this life, then when we're there, like I said, he'll wipe away every tear. He will, will have, and he gives us the ability to live above our circumstances. We'll get to that too as we go along. Verse 21, a woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she gives, has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the, the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And that's exactly what happens in childbirth. So I'm told. <laughs> Every time I talk to a woman about labor, they're like, you have no clue. <laughs> But it's true what he's talking about. And he's saying, look, here's, again, this is figurative language. He's saying, look, it's like when a woman, she knows that her time's come. She goes into labor and she is like, you know, I, I've heard women that were going to do the Lamaze thing and the Lamaze, all the, you know, the natural childbirth and they get into the middle of labor. They're give me the drugs, you know, and it's like, get, this pain is horrible and all of that. Or, or they can go through it and, you know, the coaching thing with the breathing, you know, yeah, all that. But the point is, is Jesus is saying, look, a woman doesn't give birth to this child and say, well, just take him out of here. This still hurts. No, that's gone. That whole experience is just minimized because she's got this beautiful child now that she's had the baby. Nobody's talking about labor anymore. And he's saying that's what it'll be like here with me. Yeah, it, this is going to be sorrowful. It's going to be tough for you guys, but you got to understand there's a really, really, really good ending to this. And he's trying to drive that home into their hearts, and I believe it's God's will to drive that truth home into our hearts when we go through tough stuff. He's turning sorrow into joy. When I was a little boy, uh, my mother used to take us, because I mean, I'm talking like six, seven years old. The time I learned to swim, she'd take us down to the beach right off of the end of the Los Angeles International Runway. I love that. I'd watch these jets fly over. And she'd sit on the beach and read a book, and we'd play in the ocean all day. 
every time we'd go down there, I loved the ocean. I mean, I just loved swimming in it. I loved playing around, go out beyond where I, my feet would touch and think that was cool and all that. But it's like every now and then there'd be this massive wave. <laughs> and you heard the term washing machine? Yeah, I would hit one of those washing machine waves. And it's like my little body, and it was little at one time, uh, my little body would be tumbling in these waves. I mean, just going upside down and crazy back. And my eyes are closed, and I'm just getting, if there wasn't sand on the bottom, it would have hurt because I'd be knocking around in the sand and all that. And I literally would be swimming for my life trying to find up. And I couldn't find up. And I would be getting just to the end of my breath. You know, it's like it's a little kid. I'm scared to death out there. And I would finally find out, and I burst through the surface of the water and, you know, grab a breath. And, oh, man, I'd get out, and I'd stay out of the water the rest of the day. That was horrible. I, I almost died. You know, and I'd be like, just totally traumatized by this thing. And sure enough, my mom, two weeks later, would want to take us all to the beach. Guess where I went? Right into the water. Uh, because the joy that I had from being in the water was totally outweighing the fact that I almost got tossed, and, and I'd be right back. And, and that's what Jesus hes talking about. You know what? You'll... Uh, and I don't know if you've had experiences like that. I mean, I, I could go into a thing about diving with sharks unprotected, and that was something that really terror, terrorized me too. But I'd do it again. The point is, is that he knows that he knows our frame. He knows that we're affected. He knows that we get tossed, and yet he knows that he's working a good outcome. And so often, that's why he brings us to places where he causes us we have to we don't have any other options but to and here's that word trust him to trust him uh, you guys have heard me say before I, I like to interchange the word faith with trust because trust implies something that I'm having to do on my behalf it's not just this empty faith yeah I believe and all that and that's good I'm not saying it's bad but to trust him is where you know my faith has to kind of get some feet, and I have to walk this thing out. And he brings us to places to trust. He's telling these guys, look, you've got to trust me. This is not going to look good. This is going to look horrible. It couldn't look any worse. But it's got a good outcome. You've got to hang on to that. And he's telling these guys this now so that when it happens, again, they'll hang on to that, and they'll grab a hold of that, and they will be strengthened. Their faith will not be thrashed, but their faith will be strengthened. They will know, wow, this is what he was talking about. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Why? Because joy, and we talked about joy before. Look, You look in Galatians 5 at the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, and I, I like to look at that as the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And it manifests in these other eight ways that he talks about. The joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all that. But the first thing after love is joy. Why is joy so important? It's not just dish soap, guys. It is a really tangible thing in our lives. And it's something that only the Spirit of God can bring to us, that he can plant in us, that he can express himself through us. Joy, the, the, the Old Testament says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Why is it my strength? Why is joy so important to Jesus here? And he'll stay on this joy thing for a while in these verses. Why is it so important? Because that's what helps us to get through. Happiness is communicated to my soul through my emotions and my circumstances. It's temporary. It doesn't sustain because I'm happy one minute, I'm unhappy the next, depending on what's going on around me in my environment. Joy is much deeper. It's communicated to my spirit by the Holy Spirit. And it's the fruit of his spirit. And joy is this deep understanding, knowledge. It's all going to work out. It doesn't matter what it looks like. I don't care how much this hurts. I know that this is tough. I know that they're going through it. And it's not saying I don't care. It's saying, I understand, I perceive, I see what God's doing. I see his hand in this. 
And so I'm no longer tossed around by my circumstances. I'm no longer tossed around by my fears or by my anxieties or by the things that I'm experiencing. I have joy. This deep abiding sense that God is in control and that he has my life in his hand. And it is going to work out. And it's going to work out for his glory and my good. That's joy. That's why joy is so important. That's why it's critical that we hang on to the joy that he brings in our lives because our lives, we go through stuff. We go through heavy things. We go through painful things. We see things going on around us that hurt. And we can still see those and experience those, but we can know that at the end of the day, the joy of the Lord is my strength, that he's got this. It's going to work out. Verse 23, and in that day you'll ask me nothing. They would no longer have access to him physically. That's what he's saying. But most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give you. Following his ascension, things were going to change. There would be a new relationship with God, and it would be brought about through prayer, what we call prayer. Because he's saying, you're not going to have access to me physically. You're not going to be able to walk up to me and ask me a question, but you want to know something. You can still ask. Just ask. And that's what he's doing with these guys in this whole interplay he has with these guys with their huddle over here, trying to figure out what he's saying and all that. He's saying, you know what? You don't have to do it that way. You can just ask. Because the, the, the day is here where you won't have access to my physical body. You won't have access to me. You won't see me by sight, but you will perceive my presence. And you will know that I'm here. And you will be able to have access to me unhindered access, greater access than they could have when he was physically with them because the act of redemption would be completed. This is also, it's an acknowledgement that I only have access to the Father because of Jesus. You know, when we read in Hebrews, uh, I can't remember which chapter, where it talks about we have bold access before the throne of grace. And we see in Matthew, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, where the veil was torn from the top down as Jesus' life, as he died on that cross. We see that access to God, full access to the Father, was granted in that. And he says, uh, if you, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give you. So there's responsibility, of course. You know, and, and it sometimes get a little weary of the, well, he says, in my name, in my name, in my name. It's just, and, I, and he doesn't do everything. And it's like, wait, stop. Understand there's responsibility in prayer. In this communion, this communication that we have with him, that is what the essence of prayer is, there's responsibility. If it's consistent with his name, it's consistent with his nature, his character, his purposes. And so understand that that is the model throughout the New Testament is to pray to the Father in Jesus' name. Now, there's some ex exceptions. It's people say, well, is it all right if we pray to Jesus? Because really, guys, this whole message is about prayer. Is it okay to pray to Jesus? Of course. There's a couple of places where we see that. Uh, the stoning of Stephen, where Stephen sees Jesus you know, standing. standing. Interesting. Not going to wrap trail on that. At the right hand of the Father, and, and he prays to him. Paul, with his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I, I, I sought the Lord three times. And, and the ind indication there is he's praying to Jesus. So, but primarily the pattern that we have is that we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. Now, it's interesting. There is no place in the Bible, in the New Testament, where people are praying to the Holy Spirit. Why? Again, the context of this passage, he's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the only way that my prayers have any weight at all is if they're directed by God himself. We pray under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to the Father, in the name of the Son. So the Trinity is fully involved, fully engaged in this thing. The three persons, one God, three distinct persons. So, it, But he's, there's nothing that says we pray to the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's what you do, I don't think that God's angry at that, but I see the pattern established here. Jesus gives a pattern here. Uh, so as we pray through the Spirit, to the Father, in the name of the Son, that's the pattern that he shows. And that's how I like to pray. And that's all i got to say about that. Verse 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and it will, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. There's that word joy again. He's saying just ask. 
because you're not going to have me there. You're not going to have me physically there. So now you're going to have to rely on this thing called prayer to be connected to me. He's leaving. In a few minutes, he's going to be arrested. And he's letting these guys know, when, when you see these things come about, when you see my lifeless body come off that cross, and then you see me in that grave, and then you see me rise from the dead, you're not going to have access to me physically. He would be around for about seven weeks. That's about it, six weeks. But after that, he would ascend, and now the relationship would continue on, but it would be continuing on in the spiritual realm, not in the physical. And he's telling these guys, you've got to reach into that realm. You have the ability, you have the power, you have the pattern here to be able to have communion with me, and it'll be accomplished through prayer, because I won't be around. That's why our prayer lives are so important. He says, 20, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. We see what's going on. They didn't. These chapters, this whole deal in the upper room is very largely enigmatic. Do you know what an enigma is? It's, it's a difficult to interpret or understand mystery. It's kind of a mysterious thing. And so this is really enigmatic. It's, it's difficult for these guys. They're having trouble get, grasping the things he's saying. It would all become very clear as time went forward. Uh, but he's saying, you know, I'm using this figurative language. I'm using figures of speech. I'm using these illustrations. Um, he's been doing that since they got to the upper room. It was, it was a living illustration, but the foot washing, it wasn't about we go around now as Christians and we just walk around and say, hey, can I wash your feet? That's not what it's about. Nobody was illustrating an attitude of the heart with figurative language, with saying, this is how I want you to do it. I want you to learn to go low. I want you to learn to sacrifice your own desires at the altar of self and go for other people's good. I want you to learn to, there's so much that was there in that foot washing, but it was figurative. It wasn't literal. We don't, as a church, have foot washing ceremonies. And I'm not opposed to that, Stacey. I did a marriage retreat a few years back, and, and everybody in their rooms had little buckets, and they, husbands and wives washed each other's feet because it was a very intimate, servant-oriented thing. It was an exercise. But again, it was still figurative. So that's what he's talking about. I'm, he's talking about mansions. Nobody cares about dwelling places. He's saying, in my father's house, there are these many mansions, many dwelling places. He's... He's not trying to illustrate a literal thing. He's using these figures of speech, this figurative language, to illustrate the kingdom. And, and because he knows we don't have a point of reference if he doesn't. He's talking about vines. It doesn't mean that I go tie myself to a grape bush. But he's saying that, that it's like that. He's talking about a woman in labor. It, it's, I don't have to have experienced labor to get what he's saying. Thank God that I never have. Sorry, ladies, but... You know, it's not about, he's saying, I'm using these things to help you to understand. And very often, those are good things to help us to understand. But he says in verse 26, in that day, you'll ask, you'll ask in my name, and I don't say to you that I shall, I shall pray to the Father for you. Now he's moving on. He's talking about this whole thing with prayer. He's saying, you're going to ask in my name, and I'm not going to pray to the Father for you. You don't need me in this equation. Why? It's about direct access. Period. Jesus came to die and to bridge the gap between God and man. And when that gap was bridged, uh, I think about the prophecy, the oldest thing, Job being probably the first book in the Bible that was written. And there in chapter 9, Job says, why? And he's talking to God. He says, why is there no umpire to stand between me and you that I wouldn't fear your wrath? Job understood that there was this thing called holiness when it came to God, and that God is and we're not. And that what Jesus came to do was to satisfy the holy requirements of a holy God. And as he satisfied those, that gap, that he was the umpire. He was the one to stand between. So he's, he's having accomplished that. He's saying in that day, he's talking about after he resurrects, you'll ask in my name, and I'm not going to be there to pray to the Father for you because that veil will be torn, that access will be granted, and you'll have a direct access to God the Father. 
He said, verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and I and have believed that I came from God. They had three and a half years with this guy face to face. And he knows that they'll tend to want to pray to him. He was the tangible representation of God, and he knows they'll want to pray to him. He's saying, no, it's not about that. The term father was foreign to them. They were scandalized. When Jesus prayed, he looked up towards heaven with his eyes open. And he said, Father, nobody did that before he came along. And so understand this. Because the father seems kind of ethereal, mysterious to us, if you want to know, I mentioned at the beginning of the study in John, if you want to know the Father, get to know Jesus because he is the representation of his nature, the radiance of his glory, the outshining of his glory. He is God. And yes, as we understand God the Father in a different light, I want you to understand a couple things about him. He's not in a semi-bad mood all the time. We kind of look at, we get this ethereal sense that God the Father is like, he's the one that rains down wrath and all that. No, that's passed over for you, for me. If you've done business at the cross, that's not part of what we experience in God. And he's not slightly displeased all the time. Like, I never can quite get it right. No, the grace of God is sufficient. Uh, he's not a little disappointed in you or in me all the time. He, that's not the God that we serve. And people get these conceptions of God that they're not consistent with the biblical narrative. They're not consistent with the biblical witness that of who the Father is. Yes, he is the one that stores up wrath for unbelievers, but he's also the one that pours out grace on those that truly belong to him. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be representing you to the Father. Yes, he does advocate for us. We see that in another part of the scripture. But he's saying you have direct access. And he's saying that he loves as Jesus loves. Think about that. Do you realize how loved you are by the Father? Do you realize how rich his love towards you is? Do you take it to heart? Don't walk out of here with a dark cloud over your head thinking about areas you might have blown it or whatever. Walk out of here knowing that you are absolutely adored. You are cherished in the Father's eyes. Why? Because you belong to him. You belong to his son. You've received the redemption that comes by simply having faith, trusting that he did that for you. If you haven't, make that transaction. But that you have should be the assurance, all the assurance you need of the love of God. Because it doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon him and the work that he accomplished and what he's laying out for these guys. Total shift in the way that God relates to man and man relates to God. No longer would they have a tent with a box in it or a temple where there was a veil, the separation, because that is done away with in the new covenant. It's direct access. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. He's saying, I'm going to go back where I came from. Interesting. There's an interesting declaration that Jesus is making here. The whole redemptive progress of the Son of God, when he says, I've come from the Father into the world. We're looking at that in this season of the year where we look at the incarnation again. We look at the birth of our precious Lord and Savior, God stepping out of eternity into time, the Creator taking coming into his creation that he could, be, that he could grow up and be abused and beaten and mocked and scourged and crucified by his creation? Really? A God that loves me loves you that much? Yeah, really. He's saying, I came from the Father into the world, and now I'm about to go from the world back to the Father. But there would be a change. He would accomplish redemption. He would be the vicarious atonement, the one to stand in the place of another, to bring two who are opposed to one another together. That's what atonement means, at one meant. As he does the atonement for our sin, as he brings us together for anybody who will come. It's not universal, folks. You have to believe this stuff, and you have to receive him. You have to repent from the old life. You have to embrace the, the one that he offers that's the requirement. 
but it's a free gift. He says, just receive it. Verse 29, I love this. His disciples here, um, these poor guys. His disciples uh, said to him, see, now you're speaking plainly. and You're using no figure of speech. <laughs> now we're sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. I think that's interesting. By this we believe that you came forth from God. You've got to love these guys' enthusiasm and their determination to connect with them. That's what they're trying to do. They are so sincere here. But their proclamation of the degree of faith they have is a little bit far-fetched because they don't know what's coming. Uh, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't quite share their confidence uh, in this. In verse 31, he answers them. He says, do you now believe? And he challenges them. He says, indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come. This is it, guys, that you'll be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. I bet they were scratching their heads at that. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. And the Father would be with him throughout. There would be one point where from the cross, Jesus would cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where somehow there was a tearing in God himself and the Father, as the Father would place the sins of humanity on the Son. And he would wear, he would become the propitiate. He would wear the sins of humanity for that time. I can't imagine where he had known full-blown fellowship with the Father from birth. And now it was quiet as the father turns from the son as he places the sins, our sins, on him. And yet he knows that he's not alone in this, that the father is with him. And that's where he's getting his strength. It's where his source of strength, his source of joy. He still has joy in the middle of all this. Verse 33, these things I've spoken to you, then in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. Not in the circumstances. Circumstances are about to go way south. They're about to spin out of control. In the world, you'll have tribulation, trouble. That's what that means. It just simply means trouble. In the world, you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer. Cheer up, guys. I've overcome the world. And he has. And he would. The word tribulation is slipsis in Greek. It means crushing. It's, what, it's the word they used when they would, they would hook an animal to a log that was anchored to a central point, and they would put all the grain out on the threshing floor. And, and this animal would go in circles, and this real heavy log would roll along, and it would crush the grain. So then as they, as they winnowed the grain, as they took the winnowing fork and they threw it in the air, the grain would be separated from the chaff. And, and this, it's the same word that they used. It was a crushing. And he's saying... In the world, you're going to have crushing. These things are going to happen. And he says, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And he knew that he would be arrested, forsaken, rejected, mocked, humiliated, tortured, and executed before the day was out. And we think that the disciples should have comforted him. And yet Jesus had peace. He had enough peace to give it to them. He says, I've overcome the world. In that, he's saying, this is going to end very, very well for you. Don't be deceived by what you see with your eyes. Understand that in my Father's kingdom, things are different. It's an upside-down kingdom. And understand that the things that you'll perceive coming out the back end of this, so that'll be the new reality. That'll be what I accomplish. That'll be what I give to you when the Holy Spirit comes and actually gives you the ability to comprehend, to perceive, to understand all of this. This truth that Jesus has overcome the world is transforming. You apply this one truth to your life. It's transforming. It'll, it'll see every believer through joy intact, uh, through the, all of the perils of this life. And life hits us. But there are times where if you've got nothing else to hang on to, hang on to this. Be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world. 
in Second Corinthians, we'll close with this, uh, chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Paul understood what Jesus was talking about there. He says, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. These closing remarks that Jesus has with his men are absolutely critical in their understanding, to their understanding going forward. Uh, wrapping up the time with his men in chapter 17, uh, he goes right into prayer. And then in chapter 18, he walks into the garden and gets arrested. So this is the closing of his ministry to his men. And, and these closing thoughts are so important to us to understand the shift that was going on from him physically being there to now him spiritually being, having, having greater access to him than these guys would have because he's taken up residence in us through the Holy Spirit. Wonderful passage, powerful, powerful passage, powerful understandings that come from this. Great stuff. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, it's humbling to see how you accomplish these things. It's humbling to see, to look through the eyes of your man on that, on that dreadful night, knowing that everything was changing, spinning out of control, and yet being assured that it was going to work out better than good. And Lord, I pray for each one here, things in our lives where, Sometimes we see them spinning and, and we don't understand it. We're like these guys scratching our heads trying to get understanding. Give us, the, give us the ability, Lord, and give us the insight to simply ask, to simply come to you, to cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. I thank you, Lord, for this passage in John. I thank you for this time that we can share together. We pray you're glorified in it, and that as we leave here today, that we would be conformed a little bit more to the image of your son. That's our goal, Lord. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the great love you have for us. And now we pray empower us as we go through the rest of this day and as we face the days ahead. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.